to those of you in the audience and listening to the recording later, welcome to Path to Cytoscon. It is a new live show on Discord. Um, this is episode number one. Uh, the text chat is going to be happening in the um, hashtag CytusCon channel, um, specifically in the Path to CytusCon episode one, EO1 thread. Um, we've got a code of conduct, as you might expect, um, and there's a code of conduct for this Discord server. Uh, but in addition, we we tend to follow the CytusCon um, code of conduct, which you can find at aka.ms slash CytusCon hyphen conduct. Um, and my name is Claire Giordano. Uh, I'm a CITUS open source champion here at Microsoft, and I'm co-chair of the CytusCon and event for Postgres event, uh, which is virtual and is happening in a couple of weeks. And I'm here um, with my co-host Pino DeCandia, who is an engineering manager at Microsoft working on Postgres. And we're super Hi, excited to introduce our two guests. I didn't mean to cut you off there, Pino. No, no, no. Uh, that's all right. Actually, I wanted to uh, ask, uh, do you want to shout out to the producers now? That's a great point. Um, in the background, um, Aaron Wislang and Carol Smith are producing the show. Wouldn't be happening without them and all their work behind the scenes. Um, so you can say hello to them on chat or give them any feedback um, during or afterwards as well. Uh, so... Uh, and then I think Teresa Giacomini is also here. Um, Teresa is my co-chair for the, the bigger CitusCon event happening in a couple of weeks. Cool. All right. So without further ado, let's, let's get started. Um, Simon Willison is here with us to talk about working in public um, on open Hi. source. Uh, hey, Simon. So I just have a few things that I want people to know about you. Um, obviously, you're a keynote speaker um, for the America's live stream um, for CitusCon happening later in April. And officially, I think I think people would say you're an independent researcher and developer. Um, when I think of you, I, I think back, what is it, 20 years ago to the fact that you were a co-creator of Django? Um, wow, yeah, um, yep, 20, 20 years ago, 19 and a half years ago at this point, I think. And more recently, you created Dataset, and I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about that in a few minutes so you can kind of explain to people what that is and, and why they might care. You're on the PSF board of directors, and um, most recently, you've been talking a lot about large language models in ChatGPT um, and even the new Bing. Yeah, I've, and they're beguiling. I can't pull myself away from them. They're just too fascinating and incredibly distracting. Um, I have been following you for years online. And uh, one of the things that you've been talking about for a few years is this concept of working in public and the benefits of working in public. And, that, and that's part of what inspired us to choose that topic for today. But before we dive in, we should introduce Marco. And I, I have the honor of doing that. Um, so first of all, hi, Marco. Hey, how's it going? Um, and for those of you that don't know Marco Slot, um, our second guest today, uh, who is the keynote speaker for the EMEA live stream of CitusCon, an event for Postgres. The EMEA live stream will be happening in, the, uh, in Europe on the morning of April 19th. Marco is the lead architect for the CITUS open source project. CITUS is a Postgres extension that allows you to scale Postgres uh, to multiple nodes. So you can start small with one or a few nodes and, and, and scale to many, many uh, nodes um, to a large distributed cluster. He's also the creator of the popular PGCron extension. Um, and all of Marco's CITUS engine work is done out in the open and public on GitHub 
in the CITES open source repo. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, you can pretty much see anything I did in the last few years in, uh, in, in GitHub. Um, but uh, yeah, thanks for, for also the PG Cron shout out. That is my like sort of project. It's much simpler than PG, than CITES. I spend way less time on it, but it's, it's like funny that these kind of simple pieces of software you build and then just put out there in the open. Uh, it, it, it can have a huge amount of impact if it just solves uh, a specific problem that people have. Uh, so I, 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 I'm, I'm always ha happy to hear people using PGCron. So if we want to dive into today's topic, um, I, I guess I'll just start with a super open-ended question. Like, what do, you, what do you both see as the benefits of working in public? Start with so the positives. The, okay, so the biggest thing for me is that the work that I do, like, I never want to have to solve the same problem twice, ever. That's like the most frustrating thing is when you sit down to solve a problem, you're like, wow, I solved this before and I don't have, I don't have those, I don't have, I'm going to have to do it again. I'm going to have to figure out, waste my time figuring it out all over again. And a lot of the problems that I solve when I'm engineering are problems that could be captured in some kind of form. Maybe it's a commit message with a commit that updates something. Maybe it's a few notes. Maybe it's just a, a sketch and an issue description of, of, of the approach that I was going to take. And I found that having those out there, just having those in a system massively increases my productivity and defaulting to putting them in public. Partly, it's sort of an insurance scheme. You know, I've worked for companies where I did everything in private and then I left those companies and I've lost all of that work. You know, I, I don't get to, and I'm going to have to, to re- reinvent things and, and solve the same problems again that I've already solved. Everything that I do in public that has like an open source license attached to it and it's, it's just out there, I will never have to think about those things ever again. That, that's, that's a problem that I've solved once and will never have to go back and revisit. And I love that. You know, I feel like the work that I'm doing is constantly adding up to just me having more capabilities and more tools in my tool belt. So that's a really Simon-centric perspective. Like, I oh, kind it's of very selfish. <laughs> Absolutely. I kind of expected you to talk about the benefits of sharing your learnings with others and how we can build on top of each other's learnings and how other people benefit when you share your, you know, today I learned. Um, yeah, no, again, it's very selfish. So I have this website, um, my TIL website, which I'll drop a link into the chat. And I just published my 400th note there. And on the one hand, it is for other people, you know, it's so that if somebody else needs to figure out how to copy a table from one SQLite database to another and they do a Google search, they'll land on my site and it'll solve the problem for them. But mainly it's for me, you know, these are the, the fact that I'm publishing causes me to increase the quality of the notes a little bit. So they make more sense to other people, but it also makes, means they make more sense to me when I come back in a year's time and I've forgotten everything. So, so yeah, I, I feel like you can actually be very selfish in your sort of motivations and still do all of this stuff in public in a way that benefits other people. I really like that because I hadn't thought of uh, open source beyond code, documentation, design, um, and you're actually preserving your thought process for, so that you can look at it later. And that is a huge part of what we lose over time. Well, there's Absolutely. this concept. Yeah that comes up a lot in recent years. I mean, maybe maybe people talked about this 10 years ago and I just missed it and it went right over my head, but the, the concept of doing something for future Claire, right? Not just present Claire. And uh, 
I, I definitely think about that. I mean, I had conversations with people just this week about, hmm, you know what, let's go update that document. So next year, when we're planning for CitusCon, we don't have to resolve this problem, right? We'll remember this, this um, bug and it will have been addressed. So I, I want right. to hear the same. Uh, so, so, sorry, go ahead, Simon. I was just going to say that actually, that's, that's really important. The, um, the, the, I think feel like publishing, you're writing these notes anyway, right? Like we, we, to be productive in our, in our lives, we need to make meticulous notes about things. The cost of publishing them is pretty tiny compared to the effort of putting them together in the first place. And so you may as well default to publishing them so they benefit other people, which benefits you because, you know, you get a reputation as a useful person and you're all of that kind of stuff. But yeah, it's, it's a very incremental cost on top of, or you should be keeping meticulous notes. Why not publish them? That, that reputation as a useful person is an interesting concept. So, Marco, I'm going to turn to you. Do you think your work in open source gives you a reputation as a useful person? <laughs> well, like I, I work in a in more of a team capacity on, on Citus, I guess. So I don't know if it, it would single me out as a useful person. Uh, I mean, and, and if you're if you're kind of just maintaining a very actively used open source repo by yourself, you're 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 mostly just going to get a lot of complaints a lot of the time. <laughs> so yes, but um, but now I, I do agree with like uh, what Simon says. It's like it's it, it's good to especially if you found a good way of doing things. It's it's good to just put it out there. Um, uh, I mean, it can be on a, on a blog. It can be on on GitHub. Um, because and and I mean one, one thing I, I try to do a lot, especially in writing code, is um, like I, I feel like code should always sort of the, the main job of code is to explain the problem. Like it's not so much to like I, I would say like good code explains the problem and solves it as a side effect. Um, like you, you kind of want to structure it and 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 comment on it in a way that uh, Future Marco or or future team member will look at it and say, "Okay, this 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 makes sense. I can work with this." Um, so, but I mean, it's a bit bit more of a narrow scope to, to to do that within, like, let's say, code comments and code structure of a particular project. But um, yeah, for me, like a big part of the of of, of working in public is is the uh, is the feedback mechanism. Like, if you, it's kind of hard to write write good software. Um, that's reliable and solves the right problem for people. Uh, and it, if, if you're kind of working in a sort of proprietary fashion, proprietary product, it, I mean, eventually your cus your customers might complain, or maybe you don't get customers, and, and and there's no one to complain. But in open source, it can go really quick, right? I I, I have to sometimes that oh I we push out the new version, and then 15 minutes later, someone says, hey, something broke for me. Um, and 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 that's extremely useful, um, but you also get this constant feedback of like, man, I really wish we could do this uh, on, on on GitHub issues or uh, or on our Slack channel, um, and 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 that feedback really also just helps you do better work. Um, and I mean, there's also a, a kind of developer experience side to it, which is which is part part selfish and part most kind of promotional where. It's just easier to use stuff that's open source because you don't have to set up a lot of authentication mechanisms and VPNs. It's like you just do a Git clone and you compile and it works. Um, and 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 that uh, developer experience of, of of open source, I think, is a 
is a very important aspect. Marco, Marco when you uh, earlier said that you get a lot of complaints, I thought you were going to point out that that's difficult, but then you pointed out its value. Does it also have a negative side? Um, something difficult um, to deal with? I'm not sure there's, there's many negatives. I mean, you, you, shouldn't, <laughs> you shouldn't take it personally, I guess. Um, but uh, like, I mean, if, if many people are complaining about the same thing, then, uh, you know, it's, it's a good thing to fix. If, if one person is complaining about the same thing over and over again, but no one else is complaining about it, I mean, that can, I guess, be a bit, uh, a bit annoying. But um, I mean, most of the time, it's just, just useful, and, and most people are well-intentioned anyway. Um, but um, yeah, sometimes there's also a challenge of, OK, you get, old, you get too much feedback, right? And you have to kind of start saying no to 90% that comes in, and then the project becomes more popular. So you get even more feedback, and you need to say even more. You need to say no to 99% of, of requests. So that, uh, that can get a little bit, bit difficult sometimes. I've got a workaround for that, um, which is kind oh, of fun. So, so my main project data set, one of the big features it has is a plugin system. So you can write plugins for it. And the joy of plugins is that you people can add features to my software without me being involved at all, even if I think those features are a terrible idea. And this actually plays well for me because I come up with features that I think are a terrible idea and I can still build them. <laughs> like I can I can go and build a plugin that does something kind of ridiculous and silly because it doesn't harm the core project because it's it's a separate thing. And so that I has, has been so, like when people say, how can they contribute to my software? I tell them, write plugins for it. I won't even have to review their pull request. You know, they can work completely independent of me and explore new things. And maybe my software gets a really cool new feature as a result. Well, that's really interesting because that connects to a capability that Postgres has. Like if you go back to the very first paper that was originally published, when was that? 1985, 86, Marco, about Postgres. Um, one of the primary uh, design constructs in the database was that it be extensible. Um, and so, in fact, there are there's this ability to create Postgres extensions. And Citus is, in fact, a Postgres extension. And it's enabled all this innovation to flourish um, that wouldn't have been able to be put into Postgres core, right? It, it kind of gives people runway to go off and make things happen without right. having to get them in P and uh, PG Cron awesome. is yeah PG Cron is another fantastic example of, of, of how well that kind of thing works yeah right so yeah what about, what about community fragmentation uh, aspect of that so if if you in particular in a data set Simon I wanted to ask you so if someone goes off and write, writes a plugin do they continue to have the conversation in the context of your uh, of data set or do they end up splintering off and and how, how do you bring those conversations back together? So right now, the community is small enough that we, we have a Discord that we hang out on, and that's not been a problem yet. But also, the project is young. Dataset itself is, is five years old now. The plugin system is maybe four years old. But it's only in the past year that people have really started building quite elaborate plugins on top of it, which is super exciting. You know, it's the position I've wanted the project to get to. But I feel like there's a lot of there's going to be growing pains going forward that we haven't encountered yet. So right now, it works because it's a small enough community that that's been OK. I do worry about things like um, I want to make changes to dataset which could break plugins. And that's fine when I wrote the plugins because I can upgrade them. But at once, now I've got external like volunteer maintainers building their own plugins. I have to think more carefully about that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, I feel like 
it's a well-trodden path. Like my, my inspiration was WordPress, where WordPress plugins have been around for 15 years. And the, the, I feel that the reason that WordPress has been so successful, but it is, yeah, it's a very different, that the design and architecture challenges are really interesting. You know, designing a plugin system that lets people do flexible things without sort of binding your hands in terms of the future of the project itself takes a lot of practice and work. And I, I still, I, I feel like I'm, figuring out those patterns as I go along, but it's difficult. There's, there's not much guidance out there as to how to design your plugins or extensions model for sort of maximum power and minimum friction. So what about the Postgres community? How, how, how has that been? Obviously, the extensions are massively successful. There are lots of really popular extensions. Was that a problem? Uh, um, I'm, I'm fairly new to the Postgres community, so I'd love to know a little bit about the history of extensions and and how the community remained um, uh, avoided fragmentation. Yeah, I, w I wouldn't know what the uh, what the first extensions were. I mean, I think the first really major one was was PostGIS or PostGIS, uh, which is the kind of adds the geospatial data types and functions to Postgres uh, without changing a line of Postgres code. And it's, it's very interesting. So you can have these polygons uh, like on, on maps that you store in your database, but you can also have, then create indexes on, on, on spatial indexes effectively um, because the, the plugins, the, the indexing system in Postgres is also very pluggable. Um, and and uh, yeah, I think most, uh, most places where you can run Postgres, you usually also have PostGIS. Um, and, but this this kind of data type, uh, adding a new data type, that that's a very kind of clean interface in Postgres. There are certain other types of extensions. I kind of they don't really have a name. I kind of refer to them as deep extensions uh, that that really alter the behavior. Um, Citus is one of those, and Timescale DB, and uh, I mean there's this new graph extension called Age, uh, or I think Agents Graph previously. Uh, it's basically a graph database on top of Postgres. And like they go a lot deeper into the extension interfaces that Postgres offers. I think sometimes it happens in the Postgres community where someone wants to add a new feature, how to do it, and, and what the design should look like. So uh, they just add a function pointer and say, OK, you built your own extension and you know, do, it, do it your way. Um, and, but, and, and that gives an enormous amount of power like that there's no nothing like it in any other database that you can just change the planner into something completely different um but that part is also a little less uh cleanly uh layered so it's it's hard to layer uh certain extensions that that mess with the planner on top of each other uh sometimes it works sometimes it doesn't uh like you get into also you know, binary compatibility issues that they uh, mess with the data structures in incompatible ways. Um, so, but I mean, it, it hasn't really, I mean, become a huge problem yet uh, so far. I mean, most of the time uh, people use one or two of the deep extensions, but not, not uh, a big combination. And then there's the, the vast majority are more like new data types and new functions. And uh, those extensions usually, usually compose really, really nicely. So when we were brainstorming topics for today's first episode, um, Postgres extensions was absolutely 
one of the things we considered. We could spend a whole hour talking about it. Um, and in fact, next um, next week in episode two, I think um, we're going to be back here Wednesday, 10 a.m. Pacific time as well um, with some different guests. And our topic is something like um, how to get Postgres ready for the next 100 million users. Um, and I'm sure Postgres extensions will come up in that conversation too. Um, I want to circle us back to working in public for a second. Um, uh, Simon and Marco, you both have talked about some of the benefits of doing it, but what I wanted to drill into, because um, one of you uh, kind of planted the seed in my mind, what was surprising? What has been surprising about working in public? Has there been anything surprising about working in public? I think the surprises, uh, they're the nice little surprises when somebody says, oh, I really appreciated that little, that, that note that you put out. And it's something that you threw out six months ago and promptly forgot about and honestly didn't think anyone would ever read. So that's, that's the real delight of it. You know, it's when somebody says that thing that you wrote helped me solve a problem or was useful to me. And like, like somebody will come talk to you at a conference or whatever. And that's always delightful because honestly, I publish so much stuff. Like on any de given day, I probably publish one or two TILs, like half a dozen issues, a bunch of commits. There's a mu massive volume of it. So I assume that nobody is going to see most of it or any of it because who's got the time to look at my latest github commits or whatever and so when people do that's kind of lovely you know because like i said earlier i do this selfishly it's mainly for me but anytime it's valuable to someone else it's always kind of it's kind of a, a treat it's always delightful to hear that, that 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 did have a impact in the world beyond just me having my own notes well the reason you're here is because i've been following you for years and um have learned so many different things from you that I finally mustered the courage to introduce myself and invite you to be a keynoter at CytusCon. Um, so yeah, I do. I think oftentimes people do appreciate the work that gets shared publicly, but we're not wired to necessarily express that gratitude or say thank you. So when you do get a compliment, it is kind of cool. Yeah. I mean, think about it on GitHub, there's a tab for issues. There's no tab for gratitude or appreciation or compliments um, or accolades. It's it's not there. We're all focused on what's wrong and how can we make it better. Well, there's a star and star button. Oh, that's true. There are stars. Yeah, I love it when people star the Citus GitHub repo. Um, but I, I I try not to ask for that too much because it seems so shameless. <laughs> um, but it, I suppose I suppose comments could be nice. But uh, yeah, you were asking were, were there any downsides and. Um, no, I was mean, asking the, what was surprising. Oh, what was surprising. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I think, uh, yeah, one of the surprising things about, like, if you, uh, you just push some software out there is just, uh, you know, a lot of the usage is actually very silent a lot for a long time. Well, just like Simon said, okay, just someone came out of the blue and had read this message. And the same thing happens with software where you suddenly realize there's this enormous user that has been uh, doing very interesting thing with the things you built. Um, like the, the funniest anecdote we have to share is on PG Cron. Uh, a lot of the, our team is in Turkey and it supposedly the uh, like Turkish government uses PG Cron to schedule the the streetlights for turning on and off. Um, I, don't, I don't know the exact 
I don't know the exact mechanics of it, but it, it seems it seems brilliant. I I I totally love it. Um, and 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 so that's those are also always the nice surprises because they 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 tend to happen quietly, like they you know for years. It so, turns out uh, uh, your project has been used. I I also remember this uh, like you know I I come from this university where we had this professor Andy Tannenbaum and he had this operating system called Minix, which before Linux was kind of the main uh, sort of sort of open operating systems that people were using. And he had these long debates with Linux and about the operating system architecture. And I mean, in the end, Linux kind of you know, became much bigger and Minix kind of became uh, much, much less important. But then at some point, it turned out that Intel had put Minix in one of their uh, chips. And it was like one of the most widely deployed operating systems in the world. And often these things come like really quietly. You can uh, it, it turns out that there can be massive impact of the things you've done in public. So that's that's like one of the really nice things. I think one thing I'll say there is that people often ask, like, how can I contribute to open source? And there's this idea that, oh, well, now you need to fork the code base and fix bugs and submit pull requests. Totally, like, forget about that. That's like, there is so much you can do for an open source project that comes way before you're actually like sending in um, patches and trying to commit code. And one of the most valuable initial things is just tell the people who built the project what you did with it. Because I can guarantee for the vast majority of open source projects, weeks will go by with, with maybe a bug report or two, but, but no real evidence that it's being used because people can take it and use it, use it for free um, independently. And so if somebody says to me, hey, I use Dataset to build this thing, and honestly, it doesn't matter what this thing is, I will, that will make my day. I will be absolutely thrilled to see evidence that people are engaging and using it. So yeah, just um, like, like telling people that you use their stuff is great. Even better than that, write about the thing that you did. If you like tweet a screenshot of something that you've built with my software, again, that's like, you know, that's social proof. I can endorsement. I can, I can promote that to people and I get to see what's going on. But, but so there's very tiny things you can do to support an open source project just in terms of talking about what you're doing with it that are way more valuable than you might expect. About 10 years ago, um, Josh Burkish published a, a talk, he gave a talk. Um, I think the title was something like 50 Ways to Love Your Project. And it was about all those non-code ways that people can contribute to open source. And I love the two that you just mentioned. Tell the people what you did with it and write about it, tweet about it. Um, I ended up doing a reprise of Josh's talk at a couple of conferences in the last year, like Fibonacci spirals and you know all these ways to contribute to Postgres beyond code. Um, but telling people what you did with it is probably one of my favorite ones um, because uh, it helps other prospective users, right? It helps other people who are thinking about using it in that way to learn from your experience. And then it makes the creator's day. I mean, you probably, your dog probably got an extra walk that day. Um, or maybe not. Does, does that not happen when you're really excited? Do, do you not take the dog out for a walk? I don't know. It's what I do. We have a cat. He walks himself. <laughs> Marco, what's a two-flight project? since you were talking about PG Cron earlier. Uh, sorry, a two-flight project? Yeah. Isn't that how you describe PG Cron? No? Oh, two oh, yes, a two-flight project. Oh, yeah, you asked me this before, yes. So uh, I don't know. I, I, I used to have, I mean, I don't, I don't really uh, travel by plane much anymore, <laughs> but uh, I used to fly a lot and then for work and then... Uh, I don't know. That was always 
the best place for me to write code is just sort of disconnected from the internet and people and email and chat. And then, uh, so I, uh, I guess writing PG Cron initially took me like two flights probably to the US and <laughs> to get it done. Um, but I mean, yeah, I, I had an intention there of, um, you know, it's not, it's not part of my, my day job. And, um, I kind of really tried to carefully think of, you know, if people are going to rely on this, how, without me doing a lot of work, do I make it as reliable as and as possible? And 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 that's that begins with keeping it very simple and and uh, and small and focused on a specific problem. Um, and uh, you know, there's a kind of quite a few feature requests which I'm I'm not ignoring. I'm just like weighing them extremely carefully. Uh, so for a few years, I didn't add, for example, the ability to schedule jobs in, in seconds because um, I mean, it's not something that Cron does. And it's, uh, but recently, uh, there were so many people asking for it. It's like, OK, well, this, this solves a real problem. I'll, 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 pay, I'll pay the cost of, of, of doing it. Um, and, uh, but uh, yeah, you, you also have to be careful that you know, if you if you sign up for it, like if you put something out there really within that um, people then start relying on. And uh, I mean, you, you kind of have the choice of either building a community or, around this or being on the hook for it or kind of abandoning it. Uh, and, and But so currently I'm, I'm sort of keeping myself on the hook for it, but keeping it as simple as possible as well. I feel like what you're describing there is that's the, the hardest problem in software development is is prioritization. It's deciding what to build next, deciding what features are worth paying the sort of ongoing maintenance tax, just figuring out, you know, what is the most valuable thing that I could be building. I find that incredibly difficult because I'm independent. You know, I don't have a boss or investors or anything. So there's very little sort of thought. I don't really have a forcing function to help me make those decisions. So I can get to the end of the day and I've built a new thing, which is fine, but it wasn't the thing I, inten I intended to do with, with my time to sort of to, to reach my, my larger goals. So Simon, yeah, that can be a hard day in that case. Um, I was going to ask you about that before, just in terms of, you know, you publish week notes, you, you clearly have a discipline and you have a habit of doing certain things. You, you explained the motivation before as selfishness, but then there's also this aspect of prioritization. So since you've got to decide across multiple projects, what, what, what's your what's your day like? Do you, do you sit down and um, uh, I, I don't know pre-prioritize pre everything you could potentially do? You do that weekly. A, I'd like to hear about your, yes. your, your your habits. So on a good day, when things are going well, I have a slot between nine and nine thirty in the morning where I make my plan for the day and I figure out. Okay, I try and say I'll go for one big thing and two small things that I want to get achieved. And then I'll check in at the end of the day and see if I did those. And then once a week, I sort of look at my larger goals and try and try and use that thing. That's when things are going well. Past couple of months, things have been going disastrously wrong because every sodding morning, some new AI thing has happened, which distracts me for half an hour and I miss my planning session and so forth. So honestly, I like there are periods of time when it's all working really well and I'm I'm prioritizing well. And then there are periods of time where it's it's just it's it's complete dumb luck if I get something useful achieved by the end of the day. And the week notes are a good cover for that because every week or every two weeks I publish a thing with notes on what I've been doing. And it always looks like I've been super productive. But if you actually look at the strategy and say, hang on a second, were those things that he wrote about the things that were the things he most wanted to get done or needed to get done? They often aren't. So yeah, it's it's an ongoing struggle for me. And and you know, I I I I've learned to that 
sometimes I do this stuff well and sometimes I don't. And that seems to be a sort of like cycle that I can't break out of. So, you know, as long as I don't have six months of complete sort of productive unproductivity, then I'll be okay. But yeah, at the moment, I really need to bust away from AI research world and get the, the next alpha of the data 1.0 release out. That's been top of my priority list for like a week and a half, and I still need to push forward and, and get it done. Are you saying that it's distracting when Elon Musk tweets out a link to a blog post that you've written? <laughs> that was a bit distracting a that day. Yeah, yeah, that 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 was um, that was quite that was a, a few weeks ago. I wrote a story about Bing um, when Bing had just launched and it was it was going completely off the rails and, you know, threatening people and blackmailing people and all of that kind of stuff. And yeah, so I wrote a blog entry about what had been happening and Elon Musk tweeted a link to my blog entry and I got a million readers in the next 24 hours because it was two days after he'd tweaked the Twitter algorithm so that everything he said was shown to everybody. So, so it was all that was that yeah and that was that was very that's actually that's kicked up that was a, what four weeks ago and i've been distracted by ai stuff ever since because stuff just keeps on building on top of that and yeah it's um on the one hand it's fascinating but on the other hand it's it is definitely delaying my ability to get a whole bunch of stuff done that i wanted to get done okay i want to circle back to working in public again and ask a different question um to each of you uh marco and simon what do you think makes engineers who are new to working in public? I mean, maybe they're either fresh out of college or, or maybe um, they've been working in the proprietary context for a number of years. What makes them uncomfortable with working in public on open source? I can speak for myself here, actually. Um, the biggest one is uh, when I'm employed, I feel like the work I'm doing is private to that company. And so, so I've had periods of my career where I've done very little stuff in public because I'm working for an organization who pays for my time and they pay for my code. And I signed a thing when I signed up that they had the intellectual property and so forth. And that really helped me back. And then um, there was a point a few years ago where I realized, hang on a second, I am allowed to work on things on weekends and stuff. You know, it doesn't, I don't have to have to stick as hard. And also these companies will never say, you know, approve it with your manager. And the vast majority of managers, you say, hey, I want to do this thing. They'll say yes, because why would they say no? So for me, I think it's partly because I'm a habitual rule follower. I, I sort of stifled myself by just going too close to, to the feeling that, no, my employer should get all of my intellectual output. And when I relaxed that, I was way happier and I was way more productive. Makes sense. Marco, what about you? Yeah, I mean, I think it, it partly depends on, uh, on, the, on the culture of the company and, uh, and how, uh, how you uh, experience that. But um, so, for example, by uh, a long time ago, I worked for, uh, for Amazon and uh, they had a very, I wouldn't say anti-open source policy, but they like using open source, but not contributing. And there was a time when if you wanted to contribute to open source, you had to ask PP approval. I mean, that has radically changed uh, at Amazon, but um, like, Microsoft has a little bit more of a, well, I mean, the, the new Microsoft, let's say, in the past few years, um, has a very pro-open source policy. But um, not everyone necessarily feels comfortable making the decision that say, oh, I, I wrote some useful code and I'm going to push it out there on GitHub. Like, what if, what if somewhere 
someone somewhere in the company uh, when, uh, will will disagree with that. Um, but actually, it, in practice, it's it's often quite. Uh, I mean, if it's if it concerns you know high stakes software and say that customers are paying a lot of money for it, it's obviously not not a good idea. But um, it, the the company is very open to it, and it's not it's not hard to get approval and. For many things, you don't really need to ask. Even like Microsoft actually encourages it. So it, yeah, I mean, it it really depends a bit of the company on the company and also on how you've experienced the company so far. Is is it like in your team in your organization a common practice to just stuff on or GitHub or or uh, work work on other projects? Uh, I think in our immediate teams, like it's it's pretty common. You see a bug in. Let's say PG Bouncer, you go and fix the bug. Like this. <laughs> you're not going to ask anyone should I, should I ask permission to fix this bug. But um, I, I don't know if that's the case for for all teams at Microsoft. They probably not. They or I mean I think they they could, but I don't think they necessarily feel comfortable doing that. I do have a suggestion for things to write about that I feel are safe no matter what. Um, and I just dropped a link into the chat to this. But basically, TILs, this idea of writing about things that you have learned. I feel is the sort of lowest risk form of online publishing that there is, because the great thing about saying today I learned how to do a for loop in bash or whatever, is that you're setting expectations up front. This will not, you're not going to rock somebody's world and give them new insight. This is just, I learned to do this thing today and I'm writing about it. And if that's useful to you, then fine. If it's not useful to you, then, then, then that's okay. This wasn't for you. And so I started publishing those myself a few years ago and I love it. It's so liberating because I don't get that writer's block anymore. I'm like, wow, do I really have something unique and interesting to say about this topic? We're like, no, I just figured out four loops in bash. I'm going to write up two paragraphs of text and a sample of code, and I'm going to publish it and I'm going to move on. And that, I love that. And I feel like if I was working for a company with very stringent sort of, um, no, you can't like release code and things, I'd still feel okay writing about things I'd learned. You know, that feels like a very safe category of, 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 of notes to be making and sharing with the world. And then the other thing is, um, and I've set myself a rule that any time I do a project, the price for doing that project is I have to write about it. And this is good for me because, because like I said earlier, I'm very easily distracted and I will quite, you know, I can get to the end of the day and I built, I had an idea for a project and I built it and that wasn't on my list. But at least now I have to pay for it. And the payment is I have to write it up. And the write up can be literally like a readme in a GitHub repo with just explaining what the thing is in four paragraphs of text and then always add screenshots. I feel like anything you build, you should take a screenshot because the code won't work in 10 years time, but the screenshot will last forever. So I'm, I'm a huge fan of, of, of screenshotting your work as a way to illustrate it. But yeah, I feel like if, if that's all you ever do online is anytime you learn something, you write up notes about what you learned. And anytime you do a project, you build something, you put up a quick post saying what it was you built and adding a screenshot, that will put you in the top 1% of internet users in terms of sort of quantity of content that you're producing. And it's great content. And none of it is stuff which I feel like it's very low risk. Like. If you if you put out a blog post saying, hey, this is the way agile should be done, lots of horrible people are going to tell you that you're wrong about it. If you put out a blog post saying, I figured out four loops in Bash, I kind of feel like it's a waste of their time to be to be for, for people to be super critical of that. Simon, you well, make it sound so easy. Could, could I just ask how much time did he did he, does that take you? Each of those examples you said sort of you know two paragraphs, and I learned on on, on the TIL. So, 
and the readme. I've been writing, yeah, so I've been writing a line for 20 years, and so I'm very fast at it. So a TIL post will take me between five and 20 minutes, generally. And that's I'm, partly as well, because anytime I'm figuring something out, I'm actually making notes as I go along. I use GitHub issues for this. I've got public issues in public repos. I also have a private repo called Notes which I just use for when I'm figuring something out. And so often when I get to a write-up, it's literally copying and pasting Markdown from my issue notes into, into a TIL document and hitting go. So, so a lot of the time, I've kind of written the notes already. The, 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 the public write-up is just cleaning it up a tiny bit and, and adding a little bit of extra context. But yeah, I, I feel like for the vast majority of people, it's not going to take five to 15 minutes at first because you've got to get into the swing of it and find your voice and, and sort of learn, learn how to productively write. But over time, it just keeps on getting faster. And these are, these are crucial skills. When, when you talk about becoming a senior engineer, the path to a senior engineer, I think, is through, writing, through written communication. Like that's the difference between seniors and juniors. The seniors are better at communicating about their work. So developing writing skills is a crucial professional professional skill anyway. So one of yeah, the other things... Agree. And, oh, you go. And, and thanks for, for writing up about for loops in Bash, because it's one of those things that I have to Google every single time. <laughs> 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 Along with for loops in PLPGC qualified. That's one I also cannot remember. Do you have, one, do you have a tool on that? That would be great. <laughs> I have to admit, for loops and bash, I will never write one ever again because ChatGPT writes my bash scripts for me. So I'm just like, hey, write a script that loops through every file in this repo, in this in this folder, runs ffmpeg to extract some frames and output some zip, and it does it. And so, no, I no longer feel like I need to dedicate even a corner of my brain to thinking about bash because ChatGPT knows all of the bash that I'll ever need to know. So this brings up a topic for me. Uh, Marco earlier talked about. Um, writing code on flights and not flying as much these days. Now we're, we touched on ChatGPT. I wanted to ask about changes in working in public, working on open source um, in the last five years, both technical, technological changes and cultural changes. What, what comes first to mind? And maybe Marco, I'll go to you first, if, if that's okay. Um, yeah, obviously the... Uh... Chat GPT and AI is gonna constitute a huge change. I've even like, I've used Vim and, and Bash for uh, most of my career, uh, and, but I'm, I'm starting to think, ah, I should probably be using VS Code because that's kind of where all the good integrations will be happening for, for things like Copilot. Um, so that's that's for me personally, gonna be a big change. Um, I mean, more, less technically, I guess a big change is that large organizations uh, like both software, like tech companies, but also just large enterprises are kind of massively embracing open source, uh, both in terms of usage, but also in terms of, of, of contribution. Um, is that, that, uh, oh, yeah. Are you cutting out just for me or for everybody? Uh, yeah, that cut out for me. Uh -oh. Yeah, you're cutting out, Marco. I don't know why. Okay, we'll try again, and then we'll circle back to you if it doesn't work this time. Yeah, it's still not working. Okay, I'm going to jump in and say that um, one of the changes I've observed is more of a long-term change. 
um, if we go back to when I first started um, in my career, the way people wrote was a little bit different. Um, there was almost an expectation that their audience, whether it was a paper they were writing or a, just an, a lengthy email, that people would read every word. That may not have been true, but it, the way they wrote felt like that, right? There were these long, chunky paragraphs and um, maybe things were written at the 16th grade level or something like that. And I know that when I advise people about how to blog and when I write my own stuff now, I think about scannability, browsability. I assume people are not going to read the whole thing. I make sure I assume they might jump to the screenshot, right? Like just read a couple of the section headlines and then go to the screenshot and read the caption underneath that. And so I, at least when I think about writing for people, I think about the fact that they're busy and how to make it easier for them to digest um, and to scan. And I didn't used to think about that 20 years ago. So. Yeah, that's, um, there's definitely something very important. It, it, I mean, that's part of why you want to write a lot is that the more you write, the more you develop those instincts for what's actually going to work. And yeah, I had a sort of moment of crisis uh, professionally a few years ago when I'd been, I'd gone to the habit of writing these enormously like detailed documents about project proposals and stuff. And then I kind of had a hunch that maybe nobody was reading them and I started polling around and I couldn't find anyone who'd read these documents. And yeah, it made me rethink and think, okay, actually like, like screenshots and like illustrating things more animated demos i love having a live demo like i feel like a quick live prototype of an idea speaks a thousand like text documents because the moment people start playing with it they can have a much richer conversation about it um another thing i found something i found getting back to the sort of um the chat gpt ai side of things a realization i had the other day is that there will never be documentation that is better in quality than what I can do with ChatGPT and, and tools like that, provided they have the underlying knowledge. My favorite example is, is FFmpeg, where I, I did this project the other day where I had a video and I wanted to spit out a, every 10 seconds, I wanted a JPEG frame of that video. It was a video of a, um, of a thermometer over time and I wanted to do OCR on it to, to extract out the, the readings. And so how do you use FFmpeg to spit out one JPEG for every 10 seconds? I cannot tell you that, but I have done it because I said to ChatGPT, use FFmpeg to spit out a JPEG every 10 seconds. And it gave me this incomprehensible sort of set of DSLs and scripts and all of this stuff, which just worked. And I cannot imagine FFmpeg documentation that would be good enough that it would answer that question for me as quickly as a, as a chatbot that has been trained on that documentation. And so on the one hand, it's weird, like there's this new world we live in where a chatbot provides better documentation than, than, than the best possible crafted documentation. But it also speaks to skills we need to develop as, as writers. We need to almost write our documentation so that chatbots can interpret it correctly and accurately to help answer people's questions. And then as users of this stuff, it's a, the, the skill that we need to develop is getting really good at sort of getting these, these, these language models to spit out the right information for us to help us solve problems spot all of the times that it makes stuff up, which is a huge problem, but just, and then just lose that fear. I'm no longer afraid of FFmpeg because I know that something can, can show me how to use it. Whereas previously, I very rarely used it because it's a notoriously complicated piece of software. So um, as I was preparing, I'm gonna pivot from the how have things changed back to the, the working in public thing again. Um, I reached out to Scott Hanselman last night and he says, hello, by the way, Simon. 
Um, okay. And one of the questions he suggested I ask, and actually somebody, um, Olaf on Mastodon suggested I ask something very similar is, as you work in public, how do you stay positive in the face of assholes? Like, right? There are critics out there on the internet. Um, there are haters. Um, there are complainers. How do, how do you stay positive um, when faced with that? Simon? I think... Uh, I. So part of it is that you develop a very thick skin. You know, if you're online for 20 years, you get to the point where somebody's mean to you. And I kind of think they're probably in their early 20s. <laughs> you know, they, 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 they wouldn't be that overconfident and mean if they had actual like real like 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 life experience. Um, so that helps me to a certain extent. I'm quite good. But also, um, and yeah, I think it's you. It's also a lot of it's about self-confidence. Like I am confident enough now that. I know my stuff, that if somebody says, no, you're clearly an idiot because you got this wrong, I'll be like, yeah, but I'm better at Django than you are. <laughs> you know? I, I, I... So, so, so that helps me a lot. But, that, but it, is, it's very much, it comes down to a personality thing as well. You know, I think if you want to really expose yourself on the internet in this kind of way, it does help to have quite a, quite a robust ego, you know, and to, to have that, that sort of like confidence in your own abilities. Because, yeah, people can knock you down and they will and if they succeed it's it's miserable and to put it in context does it happen much i mean i i feel like people have become more um more aware of of the consequences that even words can have is it getting better does it still happen maybe it is getting better yeah maybe oh it still happens <laughs> well, it, it, it. At least I see it. Like I share information on Reddit um, because there's, you know, I espouse the philosophy of meet developers where, where they are, right? And so um, when Marco writes some brand new brilliant Citus related blog post that I want Postgres users to see, right, in case it's useful to them, I will, I will share it on Reddit. And yeah, a lot of times comments are supportive and positive, but yeah, sometimes they're definitely not. I mean, also, I'm incredible. I'm in the most privileged position you can be. You know, I'm uh, I'm 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 white male. All you know, I I I don't have any of the and it, like like there are all sorts of of aspects of like sexism and racism and stuff that I'm that I I just don't see. So you know, it's 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 a lot easier, I think, in in that respect. Marco, Marco are, you back? are you back? Yeah, let's let's see. Can you hear me? Yeah, we can hear you. Perfect. So you want to take a with, that question too. Yeah, um, how how do you stay positive um in the face of critics on the internet? Um has that been an um, issue for you? Well, I, I, I don't spend a lot of time on Twitter and, and those kind of things, but um the I mean the main thing for me is just like focus on 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 what you're doing and, and like believe in what you're doing. It's like if so if someone comes in uh sort of criticize your project is like, you know, I've, I've already thought about this much more and uh, I kind of know we're doing the right thing or, or that we're just working within the constraints that we've had. Um, so, I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't really bother me in that case, but uh, yeah, just probably like Simon, I'm also not in a position where it's like, uh, I, I mean, I'm also in, in this kind of privileged position, I guess. So it, 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 it's, uh, I, I probably also see less of it. 
Now, what you about know, the perspective of, of, of maybe junior developers or, or people that are new to open source? And um, some people in the open source community have reputations for being harsh and quick to um, critique a new piece of code or an idea. Um, how, how... Yeah, I think I think the the PG SQL hackers list is kind of quite <laughs> quite interesting in that, but it's it's very it's it's uh, well it has a particular style, but it's not. Um, it it can be very critical of patches and 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 designs, uh, but it's kind of for in some sense the good cause of of making Postgres as, as good as possible. Um, but, but, and it's never on the person. It's just, it's just like always critiquing code, but it can be very tough for, for a new person to come in and say, oh, I, I have this nice, nice patch. And then it kind of gets criticized and that, that can be a little bit tough. Speaking of junior engineers, um, I went back and did a, a search on Twitter, uh, Simon, um, for all the instances where you talked to, you tweeted about working in public, and there is something that you tweeted back in July of 2021, um, where you said, oh, "Okay," you said, "If you want to stand out from other candidates, having even one piece of writing or published piece of code that shows something you've built is a great way to do that." So, would you still agree with that? And do you still oh, offer that advice? One hundred percent. So, I do mentoring for code boot camp, boot code um, boot camps occasionally. And yet, one of the things I was because in these boot camps, like often the students they'll they'll have a final project that they do, and they'll put that up on GitHub. And I always tell them, put up screenshots in your README because the people evaluating these things are not going to click on the demo link, and the demo will be broken in six months anyway because that's that's just what happens. So, but if your README has like multiple paragraphs of text with interspersed screenshots and all of that kind of thing, that right there will be your resume for the next like three years and it'll be working incredibly well. Because yeah, when I've been interviewing candidates um, for, for, for work, most candidates don't have, and you know, like inevitably you're gonna, you're gonna cyber stalk your candidates a little bit, gonna check and see if they've got a GitHub repository and look at their LinkedIn and that kind of stuff. And the vast majority of candidates, you won't find anything that helps you answer the question, can this person do the job? When you stumble across a candidate who's got one project on GitHub with some screenshots that shows that they can code, now it can skip the FizzBuzz interview question, you know, because I've seen their work. I've seen that they can do that. And if they've got a blog entry from five years ago with like six paragraphs discussing the internals of React or something, they're now in my mind an expert on this one subject. So, so yeah, if you want to stand, if there are a hundred people applying for a job and you're the only one with a blog and your blog hasn't been updated in five years and it has one article on it and a screenshot of something, that's still a leg up. That still makes you stand out from, from the crowd. Marco, um, do you cyberstalk your candidates <laughs> when you're talking to them? <laughs> uh, yeah, sometimes. I mean, uh, it's, it's, it's nice to just... Uh, review basically do a code review before you uh work with someone rather than after <laughs> after hiring them but uh yeah no it's it, it it definitely is a leg up like if you have some some great projects on on github or a very technical blog it um yeah i mean it helps uh, it's 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 much more i mean the resume format is is um like i always remember that one of the most senior and, and, and sort of ex, uh, best engineers I've ever worked with before he got into software in like during the dot-com bubble, he uh, was a forest firefighter. And I was like, so it, 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 it doesn't really, 
I mean, your background matters a little bit, but it's uh, it, it if you can display your skill, it's 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 just you know 100% better than than anything else. So before we wrap today, um, I wanted to give each of you a chance to to talk a little bit about your upcoming keynote. Now, I don't know if you've written your slides yet and if you're ready, but Sinus, the title of your keynote at CytusCon, which is on Tuesday the 18th at nine o'clock Pacific time, live streamed, virtual, is big opportunities in small data. And I just thought that the backstory to why you're giving that talk and why you think it matters might be interesting for people to hear about. Sure. So this is something, um, so my my day job, and I say job, I'm self-employed, so it's the thing I try to spend most of my time on, is building this open source project called Dataset. But really the theme is this is tools for data journalism specifically. So I have a, a bit of a journalism background. I've worked at a couple of newspapers. Django came out of a newspaper 20 years ago. And um, data journalism is the bit of journalism, I think it's the most interesting thing in the world, right? It's where you work <laughs> with journalists to try and tell stories with data. And, you know, anytime you see an infographic in the newspaper, any time you see a chart or a map or something, somebody went out and collected the data for that. That's a data-driven story. Um, and when I worked at the Guardian newspaper in London, like 13, 14 years ago, um, we realized that there was a reporter at the Guardian called Simon Rogers, who he was the data expert. He had like, he knew who to call at which government department to, to get data on any story that you like, that you wanted. And then he had all of these meticulous spreadsheets that he kept on a hard drive under his desk. And we got talking, we're like, we, we should do something with these meticulous spreadsheets about the world. So we, start, we ended up starting a blog. We started a thing called the Guardian Data Blog. And the idea was to publish the data behind the stories. And we ended up doing that just using Google Sheets because Google Sheets was free and, you know, and it worked and you could put data in it and people could copy that data back out again. But I always felt like there should be a more effective way of publishing data, like so a way of putting data online so people can browse and explore it, but also do API integrations with it and export it as different formats and all of that kind of stuff. And so that was the initial idea for Dataset. It was, it's a um, Python web application for publishing data online. And it's built on top of uh, SQLite because SQLite is tiny and fast and you can actually package a database with your underlying code when you deploy it. So you don't have to think about even running a separate database server. And it, this led me to this whole world of small data, where I realized that there's been lots of fuss in the industry in the past sort of five to 10 years about big data, which is measured in petabytes and you need a giant data warehouse for. But actually for the vast majority of people and organizations, what matters is the small data. It's the data that fits on a USB stick. Um, it's like, if, if, if you have, um, as an individual, I care about things like my blood sugar levels over time and my step count and, all, and, and my tweets and emails and so on. As an organization, maybe I want to know who my customers are, which is probably like 50,000 rows of data. You know, it's, it's absolutely tiny. And there's this space where I don't feel like people are investing enough effort in building these tools for small data. It, it shocks me that Microsoft Access has been kind of frozen in time for the past 20 years when it should be one of the most powerful pieces of software in the office suite. So yeah, so I've been looking at small data, building tools for that, thinking about it from a sort of data reporting and journalism point of view, and then watching how all of these governments are now releasing open data through these open data portals. So name a city in the United States, it probably has a data portal with CSV files full of trees and parking meters and all sorts of things like that. And this 
it's kind of just sat there because the tooling isn't good enough for regular individuals and you know reporters, journalists who, who I'm, I'm building for to take that data and turn it into stories. So yeah, I feel like there's a huge opportunity there. It's like, I would like to use Postgres for this stuff more than I do. And so part of the, part of my keynote is going to be talking about the ways I've been solving these problems outside of the Postgres ecosystem. And then I also want to tie it into Postgres by, by think, thinking about, I was trying to inspire things that Postgres could do better or that the Postgres community could, could build that would make it even more applicable to solving these, these much sort of smaller problems. Well, you just answered my question, which is, um, what does this small data talk based rooted in data set and um, SQLite have to do with Postgres? And there's the answer. So yeah. hopefully people will, will tune in for that. Obviously, it'll bit be recorded online after the fact, but we'd love for people to, to join live too and ask you questions. Okay, Marco, your keynote for the EMEA live stream on Wednesday uh, April 19th at nine o'clock Central European summertime is the distributed Postgres problem and how Citus solves it. So in a nutshell. Yeah. Um, and and I, uh, I kind of will update it in my slide to how Citus sometimes solves it because it's actually <laughs> sort of not, not an entirely solvable problem. So I want to talk a bit about, um, I mean, there, there's kind of different implementations appearing for distributed Postgres, but it's also been this thing that's, you know, people have dreamed of for many years, but it's it, it seems to never quite happen. And I want to talk a bit about like what's the what's the technical problem behind it? Why hasn't someone come in and, and like submitted a patch to Postgres and it's now it's distributed? Um and uh you know there's there's new implementations appearing of like uh, dis distributed implementations of Postgres. But um in my mind, fundamentally, if you spread data across many machines, the first thing that happens, everything gets slow because now it, you have to go to a different machine to get the data. So it's it's no longer nicely compacted into one place. And and this is a very important thing to understand when because Postgres is kind of a relational database. So there are a lot of relationships within the data. Um, and uh, if if all those relationships start spanning over a network, distribution doesn't help very much. So it's worth understanding that problem and then seeing, well, when does it help? Like, when does distribution make a lot of sense for what kind of applications and what kind of patterns do they use uh, use to get there? So that's uh, that's what I'm going to talk about. Awesome. Um, we are a little bit over time, not that we're set in stone to end at the top of the hour. Pino, do you are there are there more questions that we should have asked? Are there more things you wanted us to cover? Not, not for me. I think we covered everything I thought of. Um, but I, I want to say thank you to our guests. This was really interesting. Yes, Simon and Marco, um, I, I have been fans of your work, both of you, for quite a number of years now. And um, yeah, totally an honor to have you be uh, the first guests for Pino and I here on Path to CitusCon. Um, so thank you. And again, big shout out to Aaron and Carol in the background without whom, you know, this thing wouldn't even have happened today. And to everybody who came in the audience, um, who participated in the chat and joined us and tweeted about this and let their friends know, um, really appreciate your support. And Claire, do we have I another event coming up? We do. We do. So next Wednesday, um, April 12th, same time of day, 10 o'clock a.m. Pacific time. 
um, which is a nice time slot for those of you in Europe, because hopefully it's like right before or right after dinner. Um, doesn't work for my friends in New Zealand, unfortunately. Um, but we have a number of guests. Um, Melanie Plejman will be here, Samai Sharma, um, Abdullah Usterner, whose last name I probably mispronounced, and um, Barak Y will be here also. And um, the topic is, again, how to get Postgres ready for the next 11 million users. Um, and so we've got some people with uh, who work on Postgres open source amongst that group and others who work on Citus open source. And we, we thought that would make an interesting discussion too. Um, I think somebody could probably drop the, the calendar invite in the chat um, for that episode too, um, in case any of you want to put it on your calendars. Um, I think it's aka.ms slash path to CitusCon hyphen EPO2 hyphen Cal or something like that. Anyway, Simon, Marco, thank you. Thank you so much. This has been really fun. Yeah, Sam, it's, it's been great. And, and thanks everyone in the audience for, for tuning in. Uh, yeah, hope we get more of these for next year's CitusCon. It was, it was very cool. And Pino, I love collaborating with you. This is cool. Same here. I had a lot of fun. I'm looking forward to doing it again. All right. See you next Wednesday, everybody. And uh, Marco and Pino, we'll see you at CitusCon on the 18th and 19th. Can't wait. Yeah, see you at CitusCon. Right. That's a wrap. Bye, everyone. Oh, cool. Thanks a lot. Bye, everyone.